Hello, everybody. Welcome uh, to another session of the Mythgard Movie Club. Um, so happy to have all of you with us. Hello, GoToWebinar and Twitch folks that are joining us tonight. Um, we're here to talk about She, the 1935 production of the Ryder Haggard novel. Um, so let's go around, I guess, and introduce ourselves first as the panelists. Um, I'm Kat Sass. I'm one of the co-hosts of the Mythgard Movie Club. Uh, and also uh, the academic coordinator for the Signum MA program, of which I'm also an alum. Um, and I am an academic coordinator by day also. And uh, I blog at, uh, Corey laughs every time I say that. Um, this is how I spend my day. I'm an academic coordinator by day and by night. <laughs> by night. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it's very exciting double life that I lead. Um, That's right very similar uh, days and nights. And um, I blog at uh, ravingsanity.wordpress.com. And uh, with Curtis Wyant, uh, we also do a podcast called Cat and Kurt's TV Review, where we talk about uh, science fiction and fantasy TV shows. So Chris, why don't you go ahead next? All right, I'm Chris Swank. I'm also an alum from Signum University, one of the old, old alums way back to 2011. I'm now a preceptor at Signum and uh, a thesis advisor. And by day, I'm a librarian. That's my secret identity. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm Curtis Wyant. As Kat said, uh, we do a podcast together and, and co-host uh, the Mythgard Movie Club here. Um, I help out Signum with uh, some of the website work and uh, some of the social media. You may not know it, but some of those tweets and Facebook posts are mine. Um, the, uh, so blame me, not Corey. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to talking about She, which is a movie that, uh, hadn't, hadn't really looked into at all before, uh, before we chose it for this. Yeah, excellent. And I'm Corey Olson, president of Signum University, and uh, really happy to be here. Uh, excited to, I've been watching a lot of old black and white things lately, so it was uh, fun to go back and watch uh, She. And also, I will say, uh, She is a, um, uh, the, the the novel by uh, H. Ryder Haggard uh, was like the Haggard I've been meeting to get around to for a really, really long time. I hadn't ever read mm -hmm. it before. Um, I, I'd read uh, King Solomon's uh, Minds and, and a couple others, but I, I'd never read She before. Uh, so uh, the opportunity to talk about this movie both uh, uh, gave me the excuse to go back and read She, the novel, and to watch the film. And so I'm, I'm uh, uh, very interested to talk about both. So you didn't take uh, Doug Anderson's class then, because I believe you read it in that. That's right. You did. Yes. Yes. No, I, I did some highlights from that class, but I did not do all the reading. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. So, of course, uh, it is, as most of you know, uh, we are coming to the tail end of the Signum University fundraising campaign this year. Um, we are in the antepenultimate day, in fact, of our, uh, our main fundraising campaign. Um, uh, and it has been uh, 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 really wonderful so far. As you can see, we are at, we're actually a little over now, $48,000 uh, so far earned. That's really spectacular. We are uh, well over three quarters of the way to our, our budgetary needs for the year, um, which as you can see in uh, the little graphic uh, down there is at 60,000. Um, and we do have additional needs this year for finishing our credentialing process. The uh, process of applying for accreditation is expensive. And I'm gonna be 
explaining all that stuff uh, pretty soon, showing you charts and uh, uh, and tables and things uh, of all that stuff, um, which reminds me, of course, as you can see here on the bottom right of your screen, uh, that our annual webathon is on Saturday, October 13th at noon. So that's two days from now. And the webathon, this is our sixth annual webathon, and it's always a tremendous a lot of fun. We have lots and lots. We sort of feature snippets and bits of uh, all of our different uh, stuff that we do. Um, and uh, it's a great deal of fun. So the stuff that is gonna be happening in uh, the webathon this year will include things like, um, I'm, we're gonna have a dis I'm gonna have a discussion with Serena Higgins uh, about, uh, you know, she of course uh, uh, published her wonderful book, The Inklings and King Arthur, um, uh, earlier won the Mythopoeic uh, Award this year for scholarship, um, which was absolutely fantastic and super well-deserved. Uh, and she and I are gonna be talking about specifically Sir Thomas Mowry and the Inklings. Of course, we've been thinking a lot about Mowry in the Mythgard Academy lately. Um, and so we're gonna be looking at the relationship that the, all the Inklings had with Sir Thomas Mowry. Um, specifically, actually kind of maintaining the Arthurian theme uh, in a later segment in the um uh, in the the, uh, the 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 webathon, I'm going to be doing a close reading of the Fall of Arthur. I've never really done a concerted broadcast on the Fall of Arthur, and I've been thinking about it, especially uh, thanks to the section of Maori that we just finished a couple weeks back. So um, I decided I want to I want to I want to sit down with the Fall of Arthur. So we're going to do that. Um, uh, Kat, who's above me on the screen here, is going to join me. We're going to talk about classic Doctor Who. Kat is uh, our resident Doctor Who expert here <laughs> among our Signum folks. Uh, and I've been, it's been my project lately. I'm working my way towards the end of season seven. I'm in the third doctor now. Uh, and I am just really, really interested um, to see how the kind of mythology of Doctor Who grew from the beginning. Um, it is, uh, after seven seasons, I can say nothing like I would have predicted. Uh, you know, knowing the new Who as I did, I've, I've watched through all the new Who uh, twice now, um, but I'd never seen any of the classic before. So I went back to do that and was super surprised by what I found when I went back and started at season one. Uh, so Kat and I are gonna talk about that some on Saturday and that'll be fun. Um, we're doing trivia competitions. There's gonna be, I'm gonna do a Lotro stream. Uh, uh, Wigand is gonna do Pilar gear. I'm gonna do the epic battle at Pilar gear uh, alongside Aragorn and the army of the dead. Uh, so that's gonna be fun. Um, I'm gonna do, um, uh, we're going to do, let's see, what else we're going to do? There's another thing. Oh, yeah, of course, the State of the University Address, where I'm going to be explaining what's going on. Uh, you know, lots of people have been asking questions about where we are and our credentialing process and what's happening. So I'm going to explain all that stuff and uh, what we're looking towards this coming year. Uh, and also, we're going to be doing some new and exciting things with Mythgard. Mythgard is expanding and developing this year. Uh, so I am going to uh, host a special session at the very beginning, actually. This is going to start right at noon um, with our new director of the Mythgard Institute, which I am super excited to introduce to you uh, and to... Um, talk about what's uh, some of the things that are coming uh, over the course of this uh, coming year. And there will be trivia contests and prizes and giveaways and the drawings for our uh, uh, donor um, uh, uh, drawings from all of our different classes, classes and everything. I'm going to be going to be giving stuff away like Father Christmas all day long. So um, it's going to be great fun. So I hope you'll be able to join me. That starts at noon and ends sometime much later than that um midnight ish <laughs> basically yeah so 
Hope you'll be able to join me for that. And that's and there's the there's the link to that is on the fund page, right, Curtis? The go to webinar link. Um, so sydneyuniversity.org/fund. Uh, yes. You can find the uh, the registration link to join that, or you can join us on Twitch. We'll be broadcasting that on Twitch all day long too. And and if you don't want to go to the fund page, it's actually right on our homepage too. Just scroll down a little; it's right under the video there. So lots right. of places you can get that uh, link to. Um, so you mentioned drawings. Um, do you want to yes. real quick mention uh, what we're doing tonight too? Yeah. So we're going to do a couple of drawings here tonight too. So uh, we're going to do this just like we I've been doing uh, in my other regular broadcast sessions during the course of the last three weeks. Uh, so we're going to do uh, we're gonna, when we come to the end of our session, we'll do two drawings. Um, so I'll do one drawing from among everybody who is in attendance. But first, I'm going to do a drawing. Uh, from among everybody who makes a donation during the session here tonight. So while the session is going, if you make a donation while the session is going on, um, just go to signumuniversity.org slash donate, as you can see in the top right-hand corner of your screen there. Uh, make a donation tonight, and uh, we'll, so we'll do a drawing there. And the prizes for these two drawings are, you can choose either uh, a book. There are five books that we are giving away with a custom signed book plate in it. Um, that I have uh, that I've written up, um, and the books are uh, my Hobbit book, and there's uh, uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer slash Philosopher's Stone. Um, there is uh, Unfinished Tales by Tolkien. There is Sauron Defeated by Tolkien, which is of course the next book that we're doing in the Mythgard Academy after we finish Maori sometime. Um, not exceptionally soon, but before too long. Uh, and then uh, and then uh, Dune by Frank Herbert. So those are the five, one of those five books you can choose with the custom book plate. So we'll send it to you in the book plate. Or you can choose two free tickets to the regional moot of your choice. So um, in either case, if you win a drawing, all you have to do is send an email to donate at signumu.org uh, and uh, tell us that you won and we'll help you acquire your winnings. Uh, it was actually really cool. I get one of the person who won one of the drawings uh, the week before last uh, came to Middlemoot. So I actually hand delivered his free book to him. Nice. <laughs> he chose a copy of my book and I'm like, wait, I've got one. So I just, I brought it. I'm like, hey, congratulations, you won. I've never like hand delivered a, a, a drawing prize before. That was, that was kind of fun. Uh, Arthur's saying he, he likes his odds, although we should note that um, unlike other movie clubs, we're actually streaming this on Twitch as well. And so there may be uh, a little more competition more people, than usual. Yes, it's true. Uh, than than uh, normal. But yeah, anyway, well, great. So um, that's all the fundraising stuff. But wait, there's more. Um, of course, we've got, uh, speaking of regional moots, we've got three of them coming up. Uh, two of them in fairly short order in a couple of weeks here, we've got the LA yep. boot, um, which, uh, you know, is looking pretty good. Uh, good little Southern California contingent, uh, there. And I understand there's going to be some planning for even more activities, uh, perhaps in the future going on at that. Moot. That's right. That's right. Um, then, uh, just a couple of weeks after that, we've got Magnolia moot down in, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a great little city used to have to go down there for work um, back when uh, I was working for a bank headquartered in that city. Um, great little place. Our friends at uh, Johnson C. Smith uh, University, which Corey never passes up a chance to get, uh, get down. That's to right. Them, I know. That's right. It's my home uh, away from home down there. So uh, looking at that. And then TextMoot. Everything is bigger in Texas, including the amount of time that they start promoting their moots. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Because uh, I think – 
perhaps other than Myth Moot, which is our big, uh, you know, annual international moot, um, I think they they are ahead of the crowd uh, when it comes to getting out in front of uh, the calls for papers and everything. Registration yeah. is open um, uh, for all three of these. Registration is still open, and uh, and uh, actually uh, Magnolia Moot just today extended their CFP. Um, so if you were thinking of going and wanted to present something there. Uh, go ahead and send that in details. Um, again, you can access it right from the Signum homepage. Uh, scroll down a little bit. Uh, it's a little further down than normal because we have our annual fun stuff there, but all of the event stuff is right on the homepage. Um, also coming up, um, Kat, uh, we mentioned, uh, you mentioned that uh, you're an academic coordinator and nothing is truer than when one semester ends and literally like the next day she has all of the information up for the upcoming semester. She's, uh, I, I know that hasn't been an easy process. That hasn't always been the case um, in previous years. <laughs> and it's been uh, hard wrangling. Maybe um, I won't call out any specific people, but maybe there are certain members of staff or, you know, faculty who um, Pat has to, you know, lasso into shape. But uh We've got some really exciting uh, classes coming up. A new one on the life and times of the English epic, which just that mm -hmm. title is just cool enough to like sign up. It is, yeah. Um, be looking at some of uh, not just English epics, but some of the precursors too, some of the classical stuff like the Aeneid, um, mm -hmm. Doctor's Inferno, and that kind of thing. Um, but the also uh, the other thing. So of course, you know, looking at Milton and. Um, fairy queen and that sort of thing uh, but i like too that they're coming right up to modern day with uh, looking at philip Pullman, uh, the subtle knife and even the movie hot fuzz which is not one that we're going to be doing on movie club anytime soon so that's the only place you can get it uh <laughs> with that in-depth analysis uh that signal provides so uh lots of really cool stuff i encourage you to go out and look at that uh, and then of course some of our flex courses um tolkien's world of middle earth which is uh, Berlin Flieger's class uh, about the legendarium, um, literary Copernicus about uh, Lovecraft's uh, works, which you can see my Lovecraft right about there, uh, the book that I had for that. Um, and uh, what better time to sign up for a Lovecraft class than a spooky time in October here, right? So go ahead. That's and right. That's right. Yeah, and and Sharon reminds us to remind everybody else. Um, if you're interested in registering for classes, do so early. You get the sort of pick of um, discussion times. You know, the early registrants are the ones who influence uh, the best kind of days and times. Yeah. So um, the sooner the better. Yeah, yeah. Um, Norse myths and sagas, which are um, in translation, right? That's not one where you have to have- That's the one in translation, correct. Uh, you don't have to know Old Norse yet um, for that right. one. Although it might make you want to learn Old Norse. Um, and speaking of wanting to learn <laughs> Old Norse, actually, I forgot. We're doing a webathon segment on Old Norse. Uh, yeah. So we're going to have uh, Paul Peterson, one of our Old Norse professors, who's going to come and who's going to do a little like uh, intro translation seminar. So we're going to read some um, some Norse Eddas uh, and see how it is uh, in the Old Norse and how we how we work our way through that. So we're going to do a webinar session, a webathon session on that, I should say. Um, very, yeah. Very cool. Um, uh, and then intro to Anglo-Saxon, which, uh, you know, is is the uh, language course that we're offering. Um, yeah, classic. And so if you don't know already, our current uh, Academy book, uh, like Corey, I think, just mentioned a few minutes ago, is The Mort Arthur. We won't spend a ton of time talking about that. Um, but uh, the next one is Sauron Defeated. Is that right? Did I get that right? Sauron Defeated is our next Sauron Defeated, uh, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. Uh, a book for Academy. 
So that's what's happening around Signum. Here's what's happening in the next movie club. Uh, Night of the Living Dead. Um, great flick. Looking forward to that one. That'll be a really good discussion. Um, and then, of course, so uh, for those of you who've been following along all year, you know we've done two Star Wars films this year. Um, and basically the only reason that we were allowed to do that was I had to let Kat talk about Fantastic Beasts. Um, <laughs> No, uh, I mean, how could we not talk about Fantastic Beasts? Uh, the the inspiration was our, uh, now almost two years ago, our discussion on uh, One Fantastic Rogue Beast, um, which, uh, of course, talked about the original Fantastic Beasts movie along with uh, Rogue One. And so um, we have to follow up with the next one. It's it's pretty mm -hmm. much written in the charter. So Yeah, we've, yeah. Certain, we've kind of decided that well, as long as they keep making Harry Potter and Star Wars films, we yeah. might as well just keep following along with them because why not yeah um the key is we're not doing a star wars film next year which speaking of so everyone uh who was here last year knows that we actually announced during uh the campaign time last year we announced uh, during the webathon in fact our uh whole movie club idea and plan and so we thought what better time to announce what we're going to do next year um surprise surprise it's pretty similar. Um, we've really enjoyed this. Um, we're tweaking a few things, but um, we've kind of put together here uh, some of the movies that we're looking at as far as new movies. Uh, there's actually some slim pickings out there, um, especially when you take out all the sort of like superhero stuff that maybe um, don't offer quite as much for in-depth analysis. Uh, we uh, and Largely because as we've discovered um, a lot of the movies don't announce their dates this far in advance. Well, and this so, is also um, true. <laughs> so we're kind of leaving the pickings a little, you know, they are a little slim and we're gonna leave a few slots open so that if something pops up down the line, we have some flexibility to make last minute decisions or switch things around a little bit. So for the new films, um, we're looking at um, Chaos Walking, which is based on a, YA um, sci-fi series by Patrick Ness, um, who wrote Class, the Doctor Who spinoff that was out a few years ago. Um, and uh, that has Daisy Ridley and Tom Holland in it. So some, you know, well-known actors right now. And uh, the screenplay was partially written by Charlie Kaufman, who wrote Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which we discussed in Movie Club. So that has sort of a lot of reasons for us to kind of be keeping an eye on it. Um, Captive State is a movie that we planned to discuss last year, and then they moved it. <laughs> so we're keeping that yeah. on the docket. They moved it like Assuming that months, really so. ever comes out. Um, and then Artemis Fowl is something that neither of us know a lot about, but we know it's a popular series. So it seems like that might be a good thing to check out. Um, so for the old movies, sort of like last year, we're kind of, doing a little bit of a hybrid where we've narrowed down our slate a bit, but we're giving some choice and options to um, listeners. So what we're gonna do is um, for each of these decades for the last 50 or so years, um, we're offering two films per decade that sometime before the end of the year, we will you know, tweet this out as a poll that you can vote on um, which one from each of those decades you want us to talk about. So at the end, you know, the best film wins, and that will be our list of older, not old, but older films that we'll talk about next year. 
Um, and I think hopefully there's some good ones in there. So I'm interested to see what wins. Yeah. All I right. noticed you guys have all like new old movies, like nothing from the 30s and stuff like we're doing tonight. <sighs> well, is this a sore topic? <laughs> no, it's not. It's just once you get there are some options. We do have some options for for uh, perhaps future years. Um, you know, even figuring out which version of she, which we can talk about, um, how many mm -hmm. versions of she there are uh, when we uh, <laughs> when we start here. But yeah, just even finding out, you know, trying to figure out that was uh, you know kind of tough. Um, I think yeah, there's there, it, it does just get uh, a little difficult when you go back further to to kind of find. It, Especially, I, I mean, I know for my own uh, my own self, uh, I'm not as familiar with a lot of the movies from that period too. Um, and to be honest, when we when we called for uh, nominations last year, we really didn't get that many. A, a lot of them were the the ones we did get were mostly newer ones. I think the furthest nomination we got back was from the 50s, anyway. And we mm -hmm. kind of go back mm -hmm. almost that far here. Yeah, so. I think we went we went digging to find she to get something. Yeah. I think it's it's mostly a matter of knowing what from the era that is fantasy and science fiction is worth talking about. Um, right. And it's hard enough to know, you know, to be expert enough in the you know 1930s films, let alone figuring out, you know, of the science fiction, you know, genre which are the ones which are going to give us enough, you know, to discuss. So it does get a little bit difficult. Um, but if people I mean, but do there, have suggestions, we are open for them um, for future sessions. So our emails are always available. If you know of a film or if you, you know, bump across, you know, come across one at some point, um, let us know and we'll see if we can fit it in somewhere. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing, too, is is with the tweaking this year, we did want to kind of give two options per decade, but we also didn't want to have, like, you know, 10 decades worth of stuff, right. um, you know, because, I mean, it, right here, this is nine films. And, you know, while we did sort of say slim pickings, I mean, in 2018, we did 10 films. So it's we're not right. we're, we're only leaving room for like one other edition, um, which actually we should mention if you if you really, really, really want to do a film. If you donate one thousand dollars to Signum University, you do get a special session of your choice among uh, a number of different programs. One of which is the Mythgard Movie Club. So, right. uh, if if there's a film that's not on here, and you really oh sorry on on the last slide I should say, uh, if you really really want to uh, do one, and you know that's a way you want to support Signum, then we will absolutely uh, do the film of your choice within. Uh, you know, within keeping within sort of the purpose of movie club as far as, you know, being a speculative uh, film in nature. But uh, yeah, we're, we're totally open to adding uh, one or two or even three if people are willing to donate that. All right. Awesome. So um, all of that said, uh, let's talk about she. Um, so Corey, you said you just read the book. Yes. <laughs> You 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 listen read the book. Yeah, well, um, obviously, yeah. <laughs> How else do you read uh, no. things? <laughs> <laughs> wow, we won't get into that debate here. But um, yeah, so uh, I mean, obviously, you know, the 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 book uh, 
it came out, it was, it was one of those serialized books and then, you know, was sort of uh, put together and as a novel form, um, has a lot of influence uh, on a lot of different writers and stuff. Uh, but yeah, what are, I, I don't know, uh, maybe we could just go around and, and kind of give impressions, thoughts, or, or experience with the book. I mentioned I read it um, for Doug Anderson's class. Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, I don't know that I had any, you know, uh, distinct uh, things to say about it off the top of my head. But yeah, maybe just uh, let's let's go around and kind of give what your all your thoughts about the book and and where we kind of can go into um, talking about the film adaptation. Well, I'll just say kind of the same for me. That's the only Haggard that I've ever read, um, and it was for Doug Anderson's course, which is a few years ago now. So it's straining my memory to remember the novel in any detail. Um, but there are certain, you know, the kind of basic shape of the story and the impressions that it left are a little more strong than the particular details. Um, so, yeah. Well, Doug's class was um, the roots of Tolkien. So we were all reading it with Tolkien in mind and, and the different references that seemed to resonate with him. Um, Kor, the name of her land and the name of Tolkien's early land of the elves um, in like the 19 teens and, and 20s. Um, and, and she had a mirror in the book, right? Where she can pour the water and see the, see the future or see what Horace Holly is doing, or no, Horace is seeing what Leo's doing elsewhere. And that uh, has been compared to Galadriel's Mirror in Lothlorien. Yeah. yeah. So that's really the lens through which um, I read the book. Yeah. Most of what yeah. I remember. The thing that I was really struck by, and I know it's a little bit unfair because I'm like, I just read it last week. But um, <laughs> the thing that it was really striking me as I was reading it is the way I think, um, and this is something I know I when I think of Ryder Haggard, I often think about several of the comments that C.S. Lewis makes about Ryder Haggard. It's, he's one of his favorite examples to kind of talk about when he's... Uh, I have a slide his, about that. You have a slide about that? Okay, yeah. yeah. We, can, we can actually go... To advance. <laughs> yeah. We, um, we do not uh, go quite in order here uh, no. like you do, Corey. We, we're yeah. not as linear. <laughs> the mythopoeic gift of Ryder Haggard, that's exactly what I was just going to talk about, is that, you know, I was really struck by... Um, the way in which, so, you know, Lewis always talks about the wonderful job that, you know, Haggard's books do of just sort of creating this really mythic world and this sense of awe, you know, in the discovery of the strange and, 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 and bizarre, but not just arbitrarily bizarre. And in, in she in particular, I found it much more powerful um, uh, than King Solomon's Minds, which is the other writer Haggard I'd read most recently, um, mostly because I, I love the way that he built like this layer upon layer of antiquity, right? So of course you've got, you know, you've got she. Uh, now, uh, by the way, uh, what's the, what do you think is the um, uh, the consensus about how we pronounce her name? Like it's A-Y-E-S-H-A, right? Is it, how many syllables? Is it Ayesha or is it Aisha? Or what do you, I, I'm not really, I'm not really confident. I, I, I think I read in, in, looking it up that at least for Haggard, he said it should have been pronounced like 
Asha or something like that. Asha? But I think, but but I don't know. But, but <laughs> it sounds it sounds to me like he was, it has been ignored. Like a lot of people <laughs> would say it's Aisha or Ayesha. Aisha, yeah. Like it looks yeah. like a, a continental Y rather than a, right. a vowel right. Y, the way it's fit. But anyway, the, the audiobook reader did read it as two syllables. Uh, uh, so I guess they paid attention to Haggard anyhow. Anyway, so um, you've got Aisha at the center, right? And she's like more than 2,000 years old. Uh, and so the, you know, the sort of the impossible antiquity of she herself as this living survivor of the ancient world. And of course, to me, one of the most delightful parts of the um, of the book was hearing her talk about, you know, like, so, you know, when, when he refers to the Romans and she's like, oh yes. So, uh, uh, they actually made something of themselves, did they? Oh, okay. You know, they're like, you know, it's like, oh, those young Romans, like I always knew they, they, you know, they would do something interesting, you know, um, because she, you know, she, she is, she is more ancient than the Romans. You know, she remembers the Greeks. She, you know, was a contemporary of the Egyptians. Um, so we have her as this like living relic of what we always think of as the ancient world, right? Um, but of course, we get to that from England, right? We start in England uh, and then we sort of work backwards. So here's this like uh, through the story of Leo's father, you know, as he tells it to Holly before uh, before he, the father dies, um, you know, about the the their lineage, the lineage of the Vinci's, right? And how they can trace it all the way back to uh, to ancient Greece. Um, so we get this like line of history stretching from England all the way back to the, you know, the ancient Mediterranean world. And then of course we go back and they sort of follow that, that, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, mental and imaginative uh, uh, trail, you know, a trail of crumbs, right? Until they get, to Aisha herself and, uh, and, you know, this sort of, again, this living memory of that, but she herself is within core, which is a lost civilization, which is as ancient to her as she is to modern England. Right. So, you know, you've got like the, the people of core, which were this great and mighty and advanced civilization. It's like Atlantis except landlocked. Right. Um, which has been lost and there's no traces and nobody even remembers that they ever existed, but they were, you know, they were great and, and, you know, had who knows what technology prior even to, you know, the, the beginnings of Egypt or anything like that. So uh, the way in which we get these like sort of, you know, the, the, the sort of continual unfolding of deeper and deeper into antiquity until, you know, they're standing there looking at the, the huge mound of, of the of the the ancient dead, you know the the skeletons and desiccated corpses of the people of Kor, uh, seeing the fall of this great civilization and the you know the climactic scenes take place within the within the you know the the the, the you know these ruins, not just the tombs where they spend most of their time, but um, the old city of Kor and uh, and yeah the the way that that invokes. Um, the connections, you know, Chris thinking about that connection back to, you know, to core and Cortirian, right, with 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 Tolkien, that concept of the ancient lost city of the, you know, the mighty ones, of, you know, who of, of whom only a memory is, you know, left in the in the modern world, thinking of the way that Tolkien did, you know, with the elves and humans in England in the Book of Lost Tales, right, back when core was the primary word for it, um, is... Um, you can see how this 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 kind of that sort of mythopoeic vision really um, um, uh, really appealed uh, to Tolkien, and I, that I found really interesting and really powerful. And I was super interested to see 
how differently the film handled that, right? Um, uh, which was, I don't know. I'm still kind of processing it, actually, exactly what the film did with that. Um, they clearly didn't want that level of antiquity. There was there was not anything like the same sense of, we got like, this is an undiscovered country kind of thing with core in the film. Um, but we certainly didn't get that like, and this was a, this was impossibly ancient before the ancient civilizations even began, right? There's 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 none of that kind of uh, back into the mists of time uh, that you know that we are traveling imaginatively. It never really happens in the film, um, which you know, okay, like I guess that's not what they were going for. I was just kind of interested in the fact that they weren't interested in that because it seemed right. such a such a central concept uh, in the book, but. You know, that's okay. I guess nobody, not everybody has to be into the same thing. Yeah, in the movie, it seems a lot more like Shangri-La. Like, yes. like that's what they're playing on. And you see the statues in that one ceremony scene, all the giant statues above them. And they look very Buddhist or, or mm -hmm. Cambodian. Um, yeah. And then even Vinci's ancestor isn't from ancient Greece. He's from no. like the Renaissance or the end of the Renaissance. He's yeah, only 500 like 1500 years old. or something. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting choice. Yeah. Yeah. So when we were searching for something from, you know, the 30s or the 40s to kind of include uh, and stumbled, you know, across this movie, we got really excited at first because we thought at first we kind of forgot our, our Inklings history and thought that this was maybe one of the films that Tolkien and Lewis. We knew that there was that section where where Lewis complains about changes to a writer Haggard story. Um, mm -hmm. It's actually King Solomon's Mind. King Solomon's Mind. We yeah, thought, like, yeah. maybe, like, oh, they went and saw this movie together. We got, like, all jazzed about this. Um, but, like, I don't, maybe <laughs> they saw this movie. They saw it's this. still possible. Still possible. We, don't, we don't know. Um, but I think the, that, uh, I think that's in on stories where Lewis talks about, he complains yeah. about, you know, the, yeah. the changes to, it's like, they're on a cliff instead of a cave-in or whatever. Like, he talks about, like, the substitution of, D different kinds of danger and how yes. you can still have danger, but when it's a different kind of danger, that's going to change the quality of the story. Exactly. And, and he complains about the introduction of, you know, of, you know, female character in shorts who just follows them around and doesn't do anything. And, you know, all these sorts of changes yeah. that were made and sort of how they don't serve the atmosphere, uh, you know, of the story or, um, so I think feel like, even though he's not talking about she, that's still kind of a relevant question because we we get those sorts of substitutions that you're just talking about, right? Where it's not that it's doing something entirely different, but it switches out one type of thing for something else, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it does that in a number of places, like whether it's types of characters or what their background is or what they look like or where is the location of the city and all these sorts of details, it's still recognizably the same it's based on the same story, but we get enough of those things that it, I, I guess that's a question I have for the group is sort of to what extent do those changes affect the mythopoeia or the atmosphere, you know, the kind yeah. of story element of it. Yeah, no, I think that's really, that's, that's a really great question. Um, and, uh, you know, thinking of the antiquity, you know, Chris, as you're pointing out, like, 1500, right? Back to the year 1500 instead of the year, like, you know, a, a, a couple centuries BC is when the, the, you know, for 
Callicrates, who is the ancestor of Leo Vinci in, in the book. Um, and uh, I mean, I guess John Vinci is a slightly, you know, it's a little easier for her to be like, it's my John Vinci rather than to her constantly saying, oh, my Callicrates, which she does all the time in the in the book, <laughs> which like, maybe that wouldn't have played in modern cinema quite as well. But um, yeah, it is a little bit of a mouthful. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, though, again, like it's a significant, it's, it's, it's not just any mouthful. It's a Greek mouthful, right? So it conveys in the book, it conveys this, like the sense, the connection to ancient Greece, right? Um, but anyway, I, 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 can't, I can't help but wonder is, um, and I felt, I felt embarrassed thinking this way in part, but I still think I kind of might be right. Uh, Cause like on the one hand, I'm making a generalization, which is a little bit embarrassing, but I'm like, is it just an American thing? Like, is it because to Americans, the year 1500 seems like the ancient, ancient, long forgotten past. Whereas like to a British audience, 1500 is like the week before last, right? And so you have to go back to ancient Greece and Rome to, to get this, get a sense of antiquity. Whereas again, for Americans, like, this dates back to the year 1500 is like, whoa, before the foundations of the world, you know, I, I don't know. Like, or did they think it would have the same effect? Uh, but of course, because well, one of the other consequences, right, is linguistic. Because she met an English speaking person in 1500, she knows English. And so right. they can speak and she's taught everybody else English. Whereas, of course, in the book, they're all speaking Arabic. Uh, and, you know, Ryder Haggard renders it as English, but it's understood that they're all speaking Arabic the whole time. So, you know, whereas that that fiction is a little harder to maintain on film, if we're like pretend we're all speaking Arabic the whole time is a little bit weirder. Um on screen, I think, then, uh, then, um, you know, so that's, of course, another consequence of shifting it forward, you know, 1500 years. Um, but, um, to me, you know, but Kat, getting back to your question, to me, the, one of the things that was, I think, most shocking, well, certainly most shocking in the, in the, in that it was the, the, the thing that made me, like, kind of reel back most forcibly when watching the film was the location, like mm -hmm. the Arctic, seriously? We're at the North Pole? And I'm like, well, that's pretty far from like equatorial Africa. I got to say, it's like as far as you can get from the equatorial swamps around core in the book. Um, and it yeah, was funny. I watched, I, had... I, I watched the movie last weekend and then Curtis and I talked on Monday for our podcast. And I was like, now I, it's been a while since I read the book, but they were in Africa, right? In Africa. <laughs> like, yeah. Did I completely gloss over for that? most of the book, right? <laughs> yeah. Almost the entire book, except yeah. for the initial part when they set off right. in England. Well, I, uh, I did a little research, as librarians tend to do, and one of the um, academic articles on this said that the movie uh, makers, there had been so many movies set in Africa in the 30s that they wanted to not repeat that. And one of the uh, designers or directors was like, I want a saber tooth tiger. So <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but that's what this one article said. I, right. I think that there might have been um, an issue with, with some of the portrayals of Africans in 1935 America. Mm, maybe. And maybe. it's just it's kind of safer to have Neanderthals living in caves. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and one of the other things that struck me um, is there is one sense, I think, in, in which it's actually, um, so again, Kat, getting back to your question, this was a huge change, right? And in, at first, 
my thought was exactly along Lewis's line. I'm like, okay, you know, the kind of hardships that you go, like you can go through hardships at least as severe, right, in an, in the Arctic wilderness as you can in the in the equatorial swamps, but it's not the same kind of danger, right? It's going to be a very different story. But I was kind of surprised at the extent to which that ended up not being true. Like once we got into the caves, we were fine. It might as well have been Africa, right? As long as we were in there. In fact, there was a kind of a comical moment because I had told um, I had told my son that uh, you know the basic premise, and because he had been there when I was watching the beginning of the film, and I expressed verbally my surprise about the Arctic setting. And uh, later on, he's looking over my shoulders. They're there in the caves, and they had just been just when they were captured by the first group of natives uh, who are going to hot pot them. Um, by the way, that's my favorite part of the whole book is the use of the verb hot pot. Uh, to hot pot someone. Um, but anyhow, uh, so just as they're about to get hot potted, my son's looking over my shoulder and he's like, um, aren't those people a little scantily clad for the Arctic? <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's in a cave. Just just, just work with it. It's There's thermal vent. really warm. It's like a sauna. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah an Arctic sauna through the whole <laughs> land. It's fine. It's all, everything is everything. really good central heating there in the Arctic. They can um, grow papayas. <laughs> grow papayas, absolutely. They never found the papaya trees, which I was a little bit disappointed by. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, th that whole sense of like, okay, you know, really, so the Arctic setting didn't impact in the end, I found, it didn't really impact at all the central kind of mythopoeic vision of the story because it was just, it was, and, and any more than like, I mean, let's face it, the equatorial swamps weren't a major player in the book either, right? It was an obstacle they had to, they had to surpass in order to get there. But, you know, once they, um, once they got there, again, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty similar as, again, as far as the overall feel and what they were going for. Um, but, uh, the other thing, though, that I couldn't help but reflect on, and here I was thinking of comments made by both Lewis and Tolkien at different points, the timing seems to me coincidental as well, again, whether this was something they were explicitly going for or what. But, I mean, you think back to, you know, the 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 middle of the second half of the 19th century, and Africa is still like an exciting frontier, right? I mean, it's not been so many years since we discovered the source of the Nile. And, you know, we're still, you know, stories of, you know, Dr. Livingston and all that kind of thing, right? I mean, Africa is uh, a big deal, right? Um, well, in the first half of the 20th century, the Arctic is a big deal, right? I mean, this was, this was 1935 is still right in the middle of like polar expedition after polar expedition. Um, so thinking about how, uh, again, how both Lewis and Tolkien talk about, you know, like the frontier of the unknown, right? In order to tell a story that takes place imaginatively in an unknown, undiscovered country, you know, you have to kind of, it used to be enough to say, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, in German fairy stories, right? Like in the middle of the forest, right? Is where mm -hmm. the mysterious things happen. And then you move it out to the islands and then you move it, uh, you know, to, to deep, deepest, darkest Central Africa, right? Then you move it to the Arctic and then you move it to outer space, which it seems fairly clear is where it would be next, right? You know, so like the next adaptation of She would clearly, like in 1970 or something, would have been on the moon, right? Um, uh, presumably where they find the ancient culture or something like that, and in order to achieve a similar kind of effect. So um, I actually, 
So that this is this is why, although I was I was already like as soon as they said Arctic cat, I was thinking exactly along the lines that you were. I'm like, oh, changing, oh, exchanging one danger for another. I was I was I was totally doing the C.S. Lewis on stories thing, and I'm like, okay, that's going to be really good to talk about. But then I discovered actually, no, like the way that they deployed it, the function that it really seemed to have in the film. Um, was really uh, actually along very similar lines. I, I didn't feel like they did do really the the King Solomon's Mines thing, not there anyway, not not with that uh, with the with the setting element. Well, and I guess maybe because the Arctic is really just the way to something else. The the whole film, like as you said, once they're in the caves, they're it's they're scantily clad natives. It's not like yeah. the whole film is an Arctic adventure. Exactly. But there's this sort of Arctic period that they have to get through. And then yes. once they're kind of through the portal of these caves, they're in another world, which could be presumably set anywhere. Um, right. So, whereas I think that would be different if the entire setting had been mm -hmm. changed. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I just looked up Lost Horizon was made in 37. So that would have been two years after this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe Asia was the great big frontier at that time or the Siberia. Well, and we should note, too, that um, there some of the later books in the Aisha Asha series um, are set in like Tibet, in the Himalayas and everything. Mm -hmm. So right. some of some of these things, um, things that we're thinking of as substitutions might be that they're pulling it from other novels in the series and mixing and matching them a little bit. Yeah. yeah and, and that's an interesting point because because there was quite a gap between some of those um, sequels as well, like 20 years. Or so mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, in some of them. Um, yeah. And just in Corey. So in talking through um, sort of like the Lost World genres, like you said, like, um, you know, you have like these different sort of frontiers that gets pushed out. It, it reminded me of um, sort of Dr. Sturgis's contention throughout her science fiction um you know, uh, uh, two classes that she does for Signum where um, she talks a lot about that idea of the frontier and, and especially sort mm -hmm. of um, the, the Frederick Jackson Turner um, essay on, you know, significance of the frontier, um, not just in history, but into science fiction and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and and you, can, you can definitely see that sort of thing. And, and there's clearly a sort of crossover and blending between the lost world genre and into yeah. science fiction um, and, uh, you know, um, threw up some examples, one of the sort of like traditional lost world genre, but then, you know, how, uh, you know, there's, there's quite a few sci-fi that at least uh, sci-fi stories that at least have elements of that same idea mm. um, up to and including today. I mean, after I, after I kind of saw the quote, I don't, I, I'm not sure if it was Chris or Kat who put that in there. Um, but uh, yes, got to thinking, you know, things like Ringworld, where it's like not just like the Ringworld mm. itself is, you know, a lost civilization, but there's like lost civilizations within Ringworld that they yes. like continue to discover um, right. or something like Stargate, both the, the film uh, and the TV series, like the TV series is like right. one lost civilization after another. It's like, oh, we're going to go through the, the Stargate and find another lost civilization this week, you know, and, right. and right. kind of. Um, is that like Monster this... of the Week? Lost Civilization of the Week? I mean, it's, it's 10 seasons long, so there are some arcs, but, you know, it, after a while, they, they need to yeah. just kind of have, yeah, that monster, that civilization of the week. Well, one thing that, 
that's the frontier now is uh, virtual reality. And I'm thinking of the Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle movie where that's yeah. like a lost civilization inside a video game that, that they get pulled into. So we're going farther and farther to get our frontiers now. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Arthur says that the 2007 version of She, I think, was set in a post-apocalyptic dystopia. Oh. Um, so there you go. Um, it's astounding to me how many times this book has been adapted. I did not realize that before. Like this 1935 is the fifth version, which is kind of incredible. Um, and you know, I, I, I linked on Twitter to the George Millier's one minute long short, which is, I guess, the first filmed version, uh, if you can call it that, of She, which I hope everybody yeah. can go and look it up. It's one minute long and pretty awesome. So um, it's kind of amazing <laughs> that they were adapting it as far back as 1899. Speaking of awesome, these movie posters are kind of amazing. Aren't I have to say, um, yeah. uh, she who must be obeyed. Okay, right. She who must be loved. Well, yes. Okay, there's a compulsion there, so that's an interesting pairing. She who must be possessed. Well, now hang on a second. If there's anyone doing the possessing around there, it's oh. you know she's not a. But that that that. Uh, I'm sorry. I just. I know nothing about that adaptation, uh, but the idea that they're turning it like that, like making her an object instead she's, of the she's agent. an object in all of these all of these posters. She's not in a yes. position of um, authority in any of them, really. Yes, uh, that, like, well, except arguably the one where she's wearing almost nothing and carrying a whip. There's a, <laughs> there's a certain degree of authority. <laughs> kind of thing there. Yeah. But no, I agree. Actually, even more shocking is the one on the left, right? Where she's in the like, uh, you know, Princess Leia pose from the Star Wars movie. Um, and that's, that's too. Oh, yeah. That's it's almost exactly the posture. In fact, it's, it's almost making me wonder if if uh, if the Princess Leia image is in is an imitation of that because it's I mean, so cool. the costume's pretty similar too. Yes, it looks exactly well, not quite exactly, but it looks a lot like Slave Leia. It really does. Um, but um, anyway, yes, the idea of her being in the Slave Leia posture is absurd. Absolutely absurd. Um, yeah, there is no question of who is possessing whom when it comes to she who must be obeyed. Um, but wow, yeah, um, that's really startling. It, it really is. And she has fewer and fewer clothes on, you know, as, as yeah. we go through these. I, I, the one from 68 just astounds me that they could even publish that poster. It's just. Yes. Yes, uh, I mean that's the one that goes is of the four of them, obviously the one way furthest over the edge into pornography, and and the whip, like, I mean, okay, yeah, okay. I don't remember that part in the book. No, no, <laughs> not a literal whip. I mean, this maybe well, metaphorically. Yeah. Oh, that's a Hammer film. Okay. It's a Hammer film. It was the uh, the sequel to the Ursula Andress one. And they couldn't uh, get her to come back, so they got somebody else that looked like her. Oh, wait, hang on. I didn't read the subtitle. The ultimate female. Oh, great. That's a wonderful beginning. The ultimate female who used... So this is it. We've, we've visually depicted the ultimate... This is our oh, idea of the know. ultimate female. Margaret right? Thatcher, step aside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> who used her beauty and her body 
separate commodities there, which is interesting, to bring kingdoms to their downfall and men to their knees. Okay. Wow. That's something. What? There's more. Discover the excitement of that. Oh, link of Rova. A new screen beauty in the body of a what? Woman. Can't read it. In the body. Oh, okay. Is there that? Is the screen beauty in the body of a woman? Is she sometimes not in the body? Well, if she's in the body of a woman, then I'll definitely watch it. You know, I was a little plus minus before you reassured me on that point, but. Oh man, wow. the vengeance right, right of there. Yeah, uh, I don't even know what that means. Baron was also commenting on the uh, Luke and Leia esque pose. Of yeah, the it looks just like Luke and Leia. That's really, st- I mean, except like Egyptian. But you know, is he? Is he? Well, hang on a second. The the Egypt, the scantily clad Egyptian dude, uh, uh, to who is being clung to, is he? He's bound to the wall, isn't he? Shackled yeah, he to the wall. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he was was carrying something in his hand, like a snake or something. But then I'm like, no, that's like a manacle or something. He's he's stapled to the wall, that guy. And yet she's clinging to him, like she's supplicating him, though she's obviously imprisoned him. Don't leave me. I I can't. Yeah, (laughs) she's like, I can't. What do you want? I mean, I'm I'm stapled to the wall over here. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's wow. Yeah. Oh. All right. Um. Where do we go from all this? I prefer the George Melies version. They look very, very clothed. It it is, and I think, um, Chris, you pointed this out, I think, maybe before we started broadcasting, too, just um, to go go back there, though, that one of the things that's going on in sort of all of these different adaptations is that they they seem to be looking back, well, maybe not the 25 one, uh, but, but... they're all sort of reflecting back on the earlier adaptations and none of them are really looking at the source material itself. Nobody's read the book. Yeah. yeah. And, and so of course, maybe that's why it gets further and further away from the book because they're just taking what they like from the previous adaptation or adaptations and, right. and just sort of like building on that rather than. Can you go uh, two slides ahead? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, like here. You can see um, Helen Gahagan on the left and how her costume is reflected, you know, in the later 1960s versions and her throne Mm -hmm. and the headdresses and the flowy gowns and nothing like writer describes it in in the book. Nothing. She is the one thing that the only element of the visual depiction of Aisha herself that to me seemed to really be dealing with something from the book was the very opening introduction to her when she was in that awesome like cloud screen thing like the vapor that was coming up from the floor the combination of the of the of the vapor and her billowy dress was super cool and it created you know this sense of like she is behind the and she, when, when she was speaking behind it right behind that like veil of mist right that was really cool that was that you know that really struck me as sort of similar to the kind of effect that Haggard was building throughout. Um, but once she stepped through the mist, yeah, it was all like, I'm wearing sparkly gold things and a golden hat. And um, uh, I was surprised that she was as fully clothed as she mm-hmm. was. I, mm-hmm. I expected it to be scantier than it 
than it was her costume. I mean, um, I mean, she's up to the chin most of the time. She rarely shows any skin at all. Um, which again, I was not assuming. I mean, Haggard is not. <laughs> she's naked a bunch of times in the book, uh, completely naked. So um, uh, now, I mean, of course, like to the great peril of the sanity of the men around, obviously, right? Like, I mean, if she unveils herself, then you're completely like cooked for life. Uh, you know, uh, it's it, it, you would just, you know, you're overwhelmed. Um, but nevertheless, like she, she seems to do that on a number of occasions anyway uh, in the book. Um. So that that was one of the elements that really did surprise me, but um, but yeah, no, I mean, Chris, you make a really good point. I mean, as you can see, these later adaptations do seem to be even down to the color of the dress, you know, in the bottom right hand corner there. Yeah. Um, it it yeah. really is, and this is something it's so easy to forget about when you're talking about when you're thinking about a particular Hollywood film adaptation, um, and it's easy to get sucked into just thinking about its relationship to the book. When, of course, you really need to be thinking possibly first and foremost about its relationship to other Hollywood movies, uh, 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 which is at least as influential on it uh, as uh, its relationship to the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, when you kind of search for it, too, the the thing that kept coming up um, on like movie blogs and, you know, movie history sites and everything was the art deco of the mm -hmm. style, like of her headdress and her and you know the architecture and and the costuming and everything so again like that relationship to the period that it's being made rather than the period it's depicting in any sort of realistic archaeological sense I mean there's certain aspects of it that like there were moments where I could see like okay this is sort of Egyptian or this is sort of Mayan or you could kind of see mm -hmm. real world reference but then yeah you look at her crown here and you see new york skyscrapers absolutely like, you know, <laughs> more that than anything building on her head yeah exactly yeah I, I don't know how all the feathers and the eagle theme creeped in there but <laughs> very disturbing yeah that's a little different in yeah, in two of them yeah yeah well i think you know in the book she's veiled all the time because um men who see her would fall uh, under yeah. her spell, but it would be really hard to do a, an hour and a half movie with your main actress covered in a veil. I mean, yeah. could, you, could you say that again? I couldn't quite hear you. you know? <laughs> exactly. She, she is veiled. I mean, like she does wear a veil, but, but it's like a very thin diaphanous veil. It doesn't, doesn't conceal anything. Um, yeah. So it, again, it looks like they're kind of trying to gesture towards it. But I agree. It's it would not having her muffled up all the way through the film would not really would not really go over very well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was. Could you go back to the previous slide? I was really glad that you put those pictures up <laughs> because I was completely thinking of uh, uh, this is Maleficent, isn't it? This is the evil queen from Snow White. Snow White, Snow White right? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of her, especially the top left picture when when she was in this outfit here. I was like, oh my goodness, that is straight Disney queen, and I couldn't place it immediately which one it was. I'm like, you know, I had the picture, but yes, it was the the uh, the Snow White uh, queen um, was extremely striking. How similar? Oh, apparently, one of the uh, costumers on she was a an art designer on Snow White, so there you go. Uh, okay. So and they're only yeah. a couple years apart, right? Like they're only a couple years apart. 
Now, one of the animators says, no, 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 it wasn't that. It was this statue from the 11th century of, of this German Uta von Bettenberg or something, Ballenstedt. Um, he said, no, no, it's really her. But, uh, you know, you can see some of both of those in the, in the Evil Queen. Mm -hmm. Well, and who's to say that the she costume yeah. wasn't drawing on Uta von, what's her name? Like, maybe they were both kind of referencing the same historical, you know. Well, and if uh, you look at their, at their thrones, they both have this sort of art deco peacock feather mm -hmm. kind of thing going yeah. on. And that sort of sealed the deal for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I, 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 it's mostly the kind of black wimple thing the 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 black wimple and crown look was the 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 primary thing that I couldn't get away from um mm -hmm. because that to me that's the most idiosyncratic element of the of the the evil queen in in Snow White right i mean like the the high cowl is interesting right the uh the purple and black and red robe is interesting the fact that she has like a rope tied around her waist instead of any more fancy belt than that is interesting. But I mean, to me that the most idiosyncratic element of her, of her costume is the wimple that she has mm -hmm. going on there. Um, and yeah. So when I saw the wimple crown combo uh, in she, I was like, okay, all right. That's uh, very interesting. And, and unusual for a wimple. She's got a widow's peak, like cut yes. into her wimple. Cut into can, her yeah, wimple. <laughs> yeah, you can see on the lower left that Helen Gahigan has a slight widow's peak in the dark hair. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I, I think it's a pretty obvious yeah. inspiration. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I don't think uh, that was... I'm not, a, I'm not a Disney connoisseur, but that was hard even for me to miss. Um, yeah. So, um, Corey, you're somewhat famous in your Lotro streams for looking at architecture. Any architectural? Uh, I, I don't know that we had a ton of them, but there's a couple pictures on here where maybe we could. I mean, we've obviously talked about the Art Deco styles and, and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, it was um, the, uh, the this the on the top left here the 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 hall with all those statues, which we've talked about a little bit already, um, was definitely the one that I found most interesting. Um, the that the combination of that and the doors, right? Think of the 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 huge emphasis that's placed on the enormity of the door. Like they come to the door, and like the, the like ragamuffin Neanderthal dude has to be lowered down so that he can beat on the huge drum, right? Which is the signal for them to open the doors ponderously from the inside. That whole sequence was really hilarious. But I mean, this is hugely elaborate. Like we must go through this process to open the mighty doors of core. Um, that sense of that was one of the few places, again, I think the film conveyed, for me anyway, much less powerfully the sense of, again, like antiquity, like you are seeing into not just a lost civilization, but an incredibly ancient civilization. I mean, uh, Holly, the functionally main character, you know, the, the, the narrating character anyway, um, of, the, of the book, actually says at one point, he's like, how very old the world is, you know, like that's his reaction, you know, that um, this sense of, um, you know, we are just these like in, in time, our lives are these tiny mm -hmm. specks compared to the, you know, the, anyway, the film didn't, doesn't really convey that, but it does convey magnitude, right? It's, it's a lost civilization instead of an ancient civilization necessarily, but, but it's 
big in scale, right? Um, or at least their architecture is big in scale. The people themselves were a little unimpressive. And that was my least favorite element of their depiction is that I guess, so, so you've got the three classes of people in the like underground warm Arctic caves, papaya growing caves, right? You've got the, you've got the Neanderthal cannibal hot potters on the outside, right? You've got, uh, she herself is like in a category of her own, right? Separate from everyone. And then you've got the others, like, so the, those who come to rescue them from the hot potters and who are the primary servants of she, um, which I guess if I understood properly, those are the people of core, like, they're still around, mm -hmm. you know, and that I didn't like, you know, I, I, there was not that third category at all in the book. In the book, there was just, you know, the like savage, occasionally cannibalistic African tribes who serve she, right? Um, and there are some who are more wise and some who are less wise among them, but it's just the African tribe um, and she, Uh and the people of core, of course, are long gone. It's it's a it's a setting that kind of contextualizes all of them. The introduction of that like separate people was kind of interesting, but I found that it I don't know to me it kind of it kind of uh, it kind of weakened things, right? I mean it uh, it I had a hard time. I guess mostly because having just read the book, I was all like, "Ooh, the people of core, right? The ancient lost." master civilization which tragically was and so when they're like i'm like those are the people of core those people are super disappointing you didn't like the martha graham dancers there okay actually i really kind of loved the dancing actually i thought that was that was actually i, I was like when we started to do an extended dance number i like I, I will admit i started kind of rolling my eyes but after a while i'm like Cool. Okay, actually, this is pretty good. <laughs> well, and I had I'd read that it it the one um, Oscar nomination that this had was for the dance, and oh. um, and and I so there's the the bit in the beginning when the, with the hot potters where it's sort of a little ceremonial, and and I was thinking like, okay, that was like fine, like you know whatever, and then it got you know into that big climactic ceremony, and there was that moment of here we go. Um, yeah. like this is the, this is what we've been waiting for. The big, you know, song and dance spectacle at the end. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I guess that's like what we can trust these 19, you know, thirties productions to do is this spectacle. Like, so Marion C. Cooper was the producer behind King Kong and this was going to be his big follow-up. So I, I think that's what they're sort of, yeah. rather than into the, the people and the characters, the spectacle and the, you know, glamour and all that sort of thing is really going into these incredible sets, which I do think are, I'm no connoisseur of 1930s film, but to me, they seem quite spectacular and impressive. Yes, yes. Well, and, and all the more so because it was supposed to be filmed in color. So yeah. when you, you know, think about, I, I mean, they didn't because they didn't have the money to do the filming. It, I'm sure the sets were all probably bright and colorful. And I mean, I, we can question how well the recolorization, you know, in uh, 2008 captured that, but uh, I'm sure, you know, those are probably much more impressive even, uh, you know, if you saw them yeah. uh, in there. And, and Sharon's mentioned it twice. So we have to say um, the big doors are from King Kong uh, as well. Oh, they, they nice reuse. Very um, good. 
which, uh, yeah, I think, like Kat said, it, you know, Marion C. Hoover uh, had done that film. So um, it's not only other versions of she that they're sort of pulling from, I guess, at least, you know, visually, you kind of have that. Um, I'm, I'm guessing people at the time, you know, because King Kong was only, what, a, a few years before this. So mm-hmm. I'm sure people at the time noticed it, you know, in the movie uh, as well. Did did the, the, else, oh, sorry, sorry. Go, ahead. go ahead, Chris. I know I'm just saying, did anybody else think Ember and Umber when they saw those two bighorn sheep? <laughs> I did not, but that's great. <laughs> now I will. Okay, good. <laughs> um, in terms of the visual similarities to on the picture on the right of her temple space, I guess that's sort of art deco as well, although having just done our thing on Edward Scissorhands, I was thinking of all the like mm. German expressionism mm-hmm. photos we were looking at with that, like the kind of very high contrast, black and white, you know, odd weird angles and sort of Gothic shapes and everything. Um, yeah, and I mean, there absolutely. is quite a mishmash of styles all throughout the the not just the architecture but the the costumes and and sort of the portrayals as well even just in like in the dance number it's like wait what civilization are we like sort of mimicking here is it yes egyptian or asian or native american sometimes like all of them 1930s modernism yeah yeah all of them and you know like obviously it's not the same level of spectacle right but the the drumming and dancing leading up to the hot potting ritual was actually kind of good too. Like I particularly enjoyed the drumming uh, as they like began to like build their momentum towards like the cannibalistic climax uh, of, uh, of, of the hot pot ritual, or it was really not a hot pot. It was like a hot helmet, which is, which looks cooler. I mean, like the demon mask helmet thing that they had was kind of cool. But um uh, but uh, it's not I a couldn't, hot pot, I so. couldn't help but think of Game of Thrones. Yeah, I was thinking of, I was, yeah, I was thinking of that when I was, uh, uh, when I got to that point in the book, I was like, hey, George R. R. Martin brought back the hot pot. That's kind of cool, <laughs> right? That's, that's, that's great. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, no. Like I said, I was I was actually I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the 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 dance numbers. The temple sequence, though, that was one of the places that I found one of the things that I found most purely I don't know jarring. It's how they get there, right? Um, So it's a chase scene, right? They they've interrupted. He's interrupted the ritual. Leo interrupts the ritual by going and rescuing what's her what's her name. Tanya. The, Tanya. Tanya. Yeah. The like extra female lead um, or rather the extra, like it's a good thing we managed to collect a white woman along the way. Right. Or else we might've had to have him fall in love with a native like he does in the book. Right. Which right? would have been scandalous. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so anyway, phew, okay. We picked up a white woman. That's easy now. But anyhow, um, so uh, when he re- so he rescues Tanya and then everyone's trying to kill him right and we we're, we're, we're escaping through the huge doors right which we're holding shut with the spear uh, and then of course we get the we get the jumping over the cliff scene which is being uh, focused on here in the central picture 
mm-hmm. um, those two, which I was kind of su- surprised. Um, again, see, that's one moment, Kat, where I was strongly feeling the C.S. Lewis thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like the danger <laughs> of being- Danger for the in, sake of danger. Yeah, well, and, and, and a different kind of danger, right? So that scene in the book is really well done. I mean, Haggard is really good at this kind of thing, right? Uh, as, as Lewis describes, you know, conveying that sense of, um, just as in King Solomon's mind, the danger that he conveyed, you know, the effect that he conveyed was that, that sense of despair and, um, you know, sort of horrible, prolonged, um, uh, 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 um, you know, suffocation of being shut into the tombs of the dead and knowing that you can't escape and you're going to slowly starve to death, uh, in the, you know, in the tombs of the dead, um, you know, the silent dark tombs of the dead. Um, so in she, we get the trip to her, you know, where the fire is the fire of life. Um, and you know how they have to cross these increasingly perilous, uh, 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 precipices and things and there and the tipping rock right which they kind of brought back in the film um that they had to crawl across the plank to right and then they lost the plank and and you know so just the, that sense of like i am standing above an a, 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 a an unending chasm uh and uh so doing that but then saying okay but wouldn't it be cooler if they were being chased by somebody you know when they were going through their it that really totally changed. There's none of that same sense of vertigo that you get from the reading of those scenes in the book, which again, really powerfully conveyed, I thought, in the in the book. And then in the film, it's like, first of all, as you can see in the the bottom central picture there, you you can bear it's, it's he they try to convey the precariousness of it, right? By showing it super wide angle from a, a distance with the result that you can barely even see the little figures jumping, which I suppose also kind of helped because uh, presumably they were not actually jumping from one precipice to another, uh, the actors, you know, when they were doing this. Um, so it presumably helps the effect too, but I did not get the sense of danger right there. And and the sense of danger, the kind of danger that was being conveyed there was certainly not assisted by a chase scene and then ending up as we see drum uh, as we see depicted in the picture the the uh the, the painting there not the still um when they push the tipping rock over and uh you know knock a bunch of the corites or whatever they're called um down into the cliff with it <laughs> again one of the most powerful moments of that whole sequence in the book is, you know, when they make this highly perilous crossing, um, you know, at, 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 at extreme risk of plummeting to their deaths. And then the plank that they use to get across is lost, right? So they're there on the tipping rock and there's this sense, not only like we could still fall any second, but how are we going to get home? Right. Like we can't that there's no way out again because we lost the plank. Um, you know, nothing like that. And then they push the rock over, turn the corner and then bam, they're in the temple. And there she yeah. like Already waiting, there. waiting with dialogue. Like what took you so long? And I'm like, wait, wait, they're just trying to kill. And they're, 
but we're fine now. Everything's fine, right? Uh, no problems. <laughs> uh, bygones at that point. <laughs> now let's proceed to the fire of life. Um, that was, as I say, that was really the only part of the film that I found quite jarring. That I was just like, okay, this is this has really lost me imaginatively, you know, fairly, fairly, fairly completely. No, and that's funny because not having read it in several years, um, I wasn't thinking about that. And so I think the sequence worked better for me just as coming to the film sort of more clean and as this, the spectacle of kind of, wow, look what they were able to do in sort of yeah, 1935 yeah. with that technology when you don't have um, that comparison in the back of your mind. Yeah. Um, then you know your attention sort of shifts a little bit. So, but um, in hearing you describe it, um, I had the same thought that Sharon had. She's bringing up um, the Minds of Moria escape in in oh. Fellowship of the Ring, um, which you know that's a similar sort of scenario where right. it is perilous in the book. It's it's never you're never free from the sense of danger, but it's not sort of the, the the quality is different. The danger is more what's coming behind you and sort of this need to get out of there quickly out of this sort of twisty, you know, sheer rocks and everything. It's not the sort of crumbling, you know, stairwells and sort of having to sort of jump around and, you know, the, right. the danger is more physical, I guess, rather than yeah. Yeah. atmospheric. But but yeah, the whole that whole scene gets undercut when she's already in the temple and she's like, "Oh, you took the long way." <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it made me wonder what like would have happened had the people of course still been like on their heels when they had come into the temple. I mean, like that would have been an awkward moment, right? They're like with their spears, like ah, oh, and she's like, "Welcome," and they're like, "Okay, what do we do now?" <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. that was that was weird. That was weird. Ooh, another thing that I thought was one of the other really interesting things. Um, the love triangle, right? The jealousy of the leader of the, like the, the one guy of the people of Kor. Oh, Bilali. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was good. Um, and that's totally new. Like, so th there was the parallel character in the in the in the book, right? Um, uh, uh, ben Ali, I think. Um, anyway, I, I forget. Birali, Ben Ali, Bel Ali, something like that. Um, but he was just like a white bearded old guy who was she's devoted servant, and like there was no question of like him casting longing glances at her. I mean, he was totally under her spell, but he did not consider himself a rival to, you know, Calicrates. So that was, um, I was not shocked, but I was interested to see them add that, um, um, add that element in. Yeah, I think he was my favorite character because he had some emotional depth and and uh yeah you're not quite sure what game he was playing so i mean we've covered yeah. a lot of different stuff i'm trying to think we kind of <laughs> went all out of order here I'm, I'm just sort of um looking back through i think we we hit a lot of the mm -hmm. main um 
topics we wanted to, to talk about. Uh, does anyone uh, listening have um, some additional thoughts or, or have questions about some things? I know, um, I think Arthur brought up before, um, just wanted to talk about uh, the actress, um, Helen Gehagen, a little bit, um, just because she has kind of a, a storied life beyond uh, mm-hmm. this film even. Um, and so, well, I, I don't know it fully. I, I think I saw some notes maybe from Chris. Um, did you, were you the one who put those in there? Did yeah, this was, her only, this was her only film. She was a Broadway actress and she thought this would be her big, uh, her big debut and lead to a film career. And it was uh, the movie lost money and that nobody ever put her to film again. But in the forties, she became a politician and she was a two term Congresswoman from California in the fifties. She ran for Senator from California and lost to Richard Nixon. So that's really interesting. He called her the pink lady because he was trying to um, affiliate her with communism to get people to not vote for her. And she nicknamed him <gasps> Tricky Dick. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting impact on history. Exactly. She got her um, revenge in the end. Oh, and, and Sharon uh, had asked before, and it is bringing up again, uh, about, uh, so she, she noted the Galadriel connection, which um, we talked about um, briefly, uh, but, but wanted to know uh, if there's any sort of similarities. Now, I've not been following the Mallory stuff. I haven't gotten to the Necro Sorceress. Uh, you haven't gotten to the Necro Sorceress? Well, you know when you do. Um, I, yeah, so I... I read that I read she the book like only maybe a week or two after I was reading that section of Mallory uh, with the necrophiliac sorceress. And I was, <laughs> I was surprised. I'm like, how is it that I'm reading two literary work, two different literary works in two from two different periods within a two week span that feature a necrophiliac sorceress? Like I'm just, you know, now, She's less explicitly necrophiliac. Uh, she's preserved. And I was actually really surprised that they kept that in the film, right? Um, she has mummified her body, right? The right. body, yeah, of her lover that she murdered, right? So she murders the original mm-hmm. lover. Um, well, like would be lover, like the faithful husband who won't become her lover. Um, she murders him and keeps the body and mummifies it and preserves it. And there's the, you know, one of the most sort of creepy scenes, um, one of the most creepy scenes in the, uh, uh, in the book was that when Holly sort of is sneaking out at night and wanders his way down into the deep tombs where she is there like ranting over the mummified body of uh, Calicrates and uh, and she and that's one of the scenes where she like egregiously strips completely naked in order to to then like dance and rant and like do magical things, which is uncertain what purpose it serves. Um, so that was like kind of like uncomfortably erotic scene with the corpse, but uh, it wasn't like the point. It was like preservation, right? And and memory uh, more than anything. In fact, um, there's a kind of and <laughs> sorry, please forgive me the segue. 
but there is actually something kind of Goadriel like there, something like again, like the elvish preservation, like to keep all things unchanged, yeah. right? Um, that sense of her clinging to the body of her dead. I'm not suggesting anything necrophiliac about Goadriel, but I am saying that uh, her impulse in the book seemed to be primarily like again, just to, to like preserve. She's holding on to the the mummified body is all about holding on to the. Uh, um, the the memory right so so you know the, the this and she burns it as soon as he comes back right when leo vinci shows up and he's obviously the reincarnation of uh of Coicrates, um she she incinerates Coicrates's old corpse she cremates it um because she doesn't need it anymore right you know now that is passed and 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 now she has him back again um uh so yeah whereas uh the in mallory it, she's it really she's just like if i can't have you alive then i'll have you dead and she describes her plans to like lay his mummified corpse in her bed and hug it and kiss it every night and stuff so it that's just a rose different. for hashemotep yeah that's it that's it yeah mhm mhm yeah so um strikingly parallel but not identical between the two but like i said i was uh it was one of the things that most surprised me like one of the ways in which they went further out of their way than i expected to preserve a detail from the book um i was surprised when he was introduced to like his own um image you know his own preserved uh, body there, you know, or rather, you know, John Vincey's preserved body, um, which looks exactly like him and his remarks, you know, it was me, it was me lying there. Um, uh, I did not expect them to go there in the film. Uh, and it was such a, it was a relatively short scene. You know, they didn't make sort of as much of it having gone there. They didn't make quite as much of it as I might've guessed that they, that they would have, but yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Um, so the one other aspect that we haven't really talked about, not from a story perspective, but, um, just kind of the, the, uh, reception, I guess, um, is that this movie did not do very well. Um, which, you know, is maybe, uh, wasn't, I mean, it clearly wasn't the expectation given the success of King Kong. They, they were hoping this would be the big, you know, follow up, um, you know, for uh, Marion C. Cooper and, and those working on it. Uh, I, I found one, um, I, I, there may be other contemporary reviews of it. Um, the, the only one I found was is sort of like uh, mixed, uh, I guess we could say, uh, was like, yeah, you know, fans of H. Ryder Haggard might like it, but, you know, there's not a lot <laughs> there to like. Um, kind of in some ways, um, which is interesting, I, I think, considering what we were saying before about um, seeing what influence it did end up having. Um, and I mean, there's been plenty of other movies that have maybe been considered plots, but have nonetheless been influential on on later films. Um, but I just, I don't know, I, I find that to be somewhat interesting that it really didn't um, do well, at least in its initial release. Although it was then later released in 1949 uh, with a few minutes cut, I'm not sure exactly what scenes they were um, that were cut, but uh, apparently had something of a revival later and, and um, did quite well after that. And then, of course, uh, 
was thought to be lost, uh, or at least the original version was thought to be lost for some time um, due to studio fires. And then uh, Buster Keaton, apparently a big, uh, not just actor, but film buff himself. And um, it, it was apparently not just this film, but he had, he had whole collections of like original prints of, of movies from decades of uh, movie history that uh, he had kind of in his garage and, uh, this was among them, and, and so it was able to be restored. And, and there's a whole uh, collection of of those films. Um, there were some other, I think, lost films that were, were kind of uh, to come out of that collection, um, which just from a, you know, sort of textual history, I guess, if we can call it that, uh, and, and looking through, I mean, even the, the fact that we have the film, I guess at this point to even be talking about it, it was kind of, uh, a minor miracle itself, but but again, just that idea of that the influence that it's had and and all of that, despite the sort of poor market performance and and receptions, uh, is kind of interesting as well. Um, okay, so here's a re- here's an interesting thing though about that review that you put in there. Um, this is really fascinating because the guy who wrote the review is essentially saying this movie isn't very good, but if you're a Ryder Haggard fan, you might like it. Right. And he claims to like it because, you know, he calls himself an unrepentant Haggard fan, right? Cause it had already become unfashionable to, to admit in adulthood that you liked H. Ryder Haggard. Um, uh, and so he's commending it as a Haggard fan, but he obviously has not read she or only read it decades ago. I was just, yeah. He mentions the avalanches and the icebergs and And the ice barrier. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Can I I point out that this guy is Graham green? So it's not nobody, you know, it's like he of uh, the quiet American and, you know, like this isn't a hack, you know, it's somebody who you would trust to kind of know what he's talking about. And like on the you know lists of people who have stated themselves as influenced by Haggard, Graham Greene comes up on lists. And so, yeah, I think that's what he's saying is he was more of a King Solomon's Minds fan, which seems to be the case if he doesn't remember that he, doesn't he wasn't sitting in the Arctic. No <laughs> you, know, you don't have to carry with you very detailed memories of the book to recall <laughs> that it has nothing to do with the Arctic. <laughs> you sure. know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So he kind of seems to be positioning it as, I don't know if he would have called it some sort of guilty pleasure. Like he's mm-hmm. a Haggard fan, but doesn't seem entirely convinced of Haggard's merits as a author. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to say that his style was execrable, uh, but to then add about the childishness of his invention, which that's always a buzzword, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, I don't. I'm trying to figure out if that comes out to a compliment or an insult. You know, I. It sounds like an insult, but maybe he meant it as a compliment in a a kind of strange backhanded compliment. I'm not. Yeah. I don't. I'm not really sure. I, that's how I would take it is it's, it's sort of a backhanded compliment. Like he kind of, it, it's intended to sound sort of 
kind, but I right. think it comes off a bit patronizing. Like, yeah. well, if if you enjoy this sort of thing, then I guess you'll like this movie. Like, like your kids will like it, so don't think too hard about it. It's sort of, that's <laughs> the impression I'm getting. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting to me that his putative review of the film sort of degenerates into a critique of the book, mm -hmm. which he obviously hasn't read. <laughs> right? so, it's sure. just... so, so how many levels of critic is that? Like, <laughs> like, is there is there concentric circles like of inception levels of critic? <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, he's just kind of. I don't know. He's just sort of cheating, I, 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 I guess. And so, I mean, it's a little, it's just kind of sloppy that, you know, I was ready to go along with it till he started talking about the great ice barrier and the avalanche, but. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and and the, so the one other um, tidbit, which is more of a trivia item, I guess, than anything that I'll, I'll mention is that the, uh, one of the directors, Irving Pitchell, uh, went on to direct uh, the movie Destination Moon, which of course was written by Robert Heinlein. So there's my Heinlein. <laughs> there you go. Um, and and, and for which, which for which he received the uh, a, a retro Hugo later. So um, that's uh, actually a movie from the 50s that is on our um, longer list. It didn't make the short list for next year, but uh, is a potential one that we could visit at some uh, future year of the movie club so was, was there a pool cat for how long it would take him to mention Heinlein <laughs> only, in, only in my own no mind. but it happens you know <laughs> well I'd really love to just talk about Tanya for a little bit um, yeah. yeah I wanted to kind of go back to the to the character the characters yeah. The fact that she's kind of, uh, that she's definitely sitting in for Ustane I mean even the similarity of their names who was the African lover of Leo Vinci before he meets um, she. Just the 1930s use of the woman, you know, my favorite line from the film is, why are we taking the girl along with us? And her father says, oh, because she can cook for us. And like, yeah. nobody thinks that's funny. It's like, serious. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I seriously like that's like the the mic drop <laughs> argument, right? They're like, oh, right, yeah, okay. Oh, of course, we can't cook our own food, <laughs> right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And um, then he, uh, 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 Leo, tries to help her with the rabbit stew, and she's like, oh, you don't have to help me. It's you have to exactly. What are you doing near food? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was. One of the things that was that I was a little surprised. So I expected Leo and Tanya's relationship to move along faster than it did. You know, um, you know, when they were like kind of squaring off on either side of the rabbit stew pot, I was like, okay, uh, you know, uh, based on where we are in the film, I don't think we've got much time here. You better hustle things along if they're going to get to a quasi-matrimonial state in time for her to be a real rival for she when he when when he, when he arrives, right? Um, but they played that totally differently. Um, she doesn't. She Tanya. I, I should be careful using. 
the pronoun she in this context, Tanya does not um, does not enter in as an established rival in the way that Ustani does in the book, right? Um, they've, they're already basically married, and I, I, Haggard essentially implies that they're sleeping together already. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's he's discreet about it, but that certainly is what he suggests. Um, I, I, I think it's I think it's pretty clear. Um, whereas again, like you know. Tanya and Leo have had barely any connection. And on two occasions, both of them, both Tanya and Leo say, oh, she's nothing to him, right? She, she, she's nothing to me. I, I'm nothing to him. You know, who are you? Oh, I'm nobody, right? Um, there's no claim of a pre-existing relationship. Instead, they establish their relationship through the incident, right? It's like her... Aisha creates her own rival in the film where she just got rid of the, you know, the, the native girl was in her way. I mean, that's the phrase that she uses in the book. Like she stands in my way. Um, so she kills her um, like successfully <laughs> kills her instead of having this incredibly elaborate dance number, which then leads to not killing her to, you know, uh, and I don't know what the plan was. I still am not really following that. You know, like the super complicated plan that what's his name? The core guy that you like, Chris? I forget Bilali. his name. Bilali, yeah. When Bilali um, suggests the, the really super ornate plan, <laughs> right? About how to, how to, how to execute her uh, in the least efficient way possible. Uh, and then of course it ends up backfiring and it's not only like what disrupts the whole ceremony, but what seems to also cement Leo and Tanya's relationship, right? As he has to rush to her rescue. Um, but that was, as I say, I thought that was kind of a fascinating choice that they had her established, they had her established, not as a, a kind of a pre-existing figure, right? Like you have this earlier relationship of his and he's like, do I go with this like comparatively normal relationship with a comparatively normal woman who's sort of kind of from my culture, almost not really, I don't know what on earth she's from or why she's there in the tent of that other dude in the middle of the Arctic. Not quite sure on Tanya's background, have to admit. I was a little fuzzy on that. Yeah, I was going to ask, is there a suggestion that he's not even really her father? That, yeah. That's yeah. the yeah. question I got. Okay. Yeah. Like, like he just goes to an orphanage one day or something and it's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm her dad. And they, which, yeah. which one of these can cook? Yeah, I'm exactly. Dad. Yeah, and that's, and that's, and that's, that's, and it's, it's interesting also that there was like no implication that there was anything like really sketchy going on. She was just his cook. Like, that's it. Like, I just, I needed somebody to cook. And so I, yeah, I picked up a girl to cook. Uh, and yeah, no, that was weird. But anyway, right. So, but that's not what we saw, right? What we did not see was Leo, like, ah, uh, like, you know, essentially to, really, really loosely characterize it like the girlfriend from home, like the familiar girl or like the strange exotic, uh, you know, immortal woman over on the other side. Um, But that's, that isn't how it played out. Right. It was almost that, but not quite that. I mean, she, even her costume, right. Um, When she dresses in the core outfit, Right. She starts off with this, like, you know, I don't even know what this is exactly. The outfit that she's in, this sort of 
fairly plain conservative dress that she's in here at the beginning, um, looking like the only English housewife in the you know land of people dressed in exotic veils and crowns and things. And then, um, but then she 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 wears that. I was surprised that she changed her costume. Um, that they insist on, but but you know, Chris, it was Bilali's fault. He gave it to her, right? That's true. He wanted he it, it to happen. He wanted her to dress like that mm-hmm. because he, I think, was trying to set her up as a rival. Like he was hoping that Leo would fall in love with her and run off, and that he could then console Aisha after he. Had, at least that's the sense that I got. The I whole think, thing. Right. Bilali was scheming the whole time, right? He yeah. was trying to he was trying to make it happen. Um, and then he ironically, he wins, but then catastrophically fails, right? And we see him just collapsing in, in sadness at the end as she dies, right? Um, but of course, to me, the most, uh, the most, talk about what was Graham Greene's quote about wearing its symbolism heavily, right? Mm. Uh, talk about heavy symbolism. Oh my goodness, the visual fade from the fire of life in the cave to the hearth fire at home oh, yeah. in that final sequence, right? I was like, oh boy, all right, okay. And then Tanya spells it out, right? Yeah. Tanya, <laughs> I think the only fire of life that we really need is our safe, secure hearth at home and the warmth of our love for each other. And I was like, okay. So like, you know, it was, it was kind of barf worthy at the end, but but okay, I mean, I got it. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, there's no place like home, says Arthur. Exactly. Even visually, because when he's with she, she's in the throne and he's sitting down by her feet. Yeah. And then when they get to England, he's up in the easy chair and she's mm-hmm. down by yeah. his feet. And it's, yeah. you know, the proper order. Exactly. Exactly. The world is restored to its yeah. to its uh, to normal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sharon's suggesting or asking, I guess, um, does Tanya function like Sam to help draw Frodo slash Leo out from the evil power that has usurped his mind? Ooh, good one, Sharon. Down even to the rabbit stew, as Sharon points out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's... Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> that's not a connection I would have made, but there it is, right? Um, so. Is that a connection, you know, from the book? I mean, clearly, what Ustani is that the the mm-hmm. woman in the book? She's a, a rival, but does she give the same sense of being representative of these sort of opposing sets of values that Tanya gives, or do you think that's something that sort of adapted so. when they change so. the time she, period? She cares for Leo when he's. Um, ill she i think she cooks for them i think she mends their ripped clothing i I think you're yeah i think you've got your finger on that yeah she she definitely like she wins leo's heart in the book by like her devoted service like she because i mean the whole wedding thing is weird right that the way they get married apparently is like the woman comes up and so it's all initiated by the women in fact the whole society is largely matriarchal which is an interesting angle um, in the book. Uh, that is the cannibal society, the, the, the you know, the, 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 the 
the, the natives, the savages, you know. Um, and uh, anyway, so, so like, yeah, so the woman comes up and kisses you. And if you kiss her back, then you're married. Right. So that's her proposing. And, and Leo does this without knowing what's going on. Right. It's so like she comes up. It's like the, literally they arrive in the camp of the natives. Um, they've been there five minutes and she looks at him and he's hot. Like Leo is like super, super. He's like Greek God. He's like the reincarnation of Apollo himself. Uh, so she comes up to Leo and is like, you know, you're hot. And she kisses him. Uh, and so he's like no idea what's going on. Right. He's like, um, yeah. Native okay. culture. I'm just gonna kiss her back, right? And then later on, people tell him, "Oh yeah, so you're married now." By the way, like you didn't realize it, but now you're married. So our Mrs. Reynolds. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So we got was this. Have we yeah. read Haggard? I don't know. Yeah. It's it's uh it's a lot like that, except <laughs> there's actually much more ritual. At least see like uh, Mal and our Mrs. Reynolds. At least like there's a sense of ritual about that whole thing, right? Like sure. he's kind of too dense and too drunk to notice it, but, but there's, there's clearly ritual going on there. Whereas the other one, like in the book, it's everyone thinks it's just a greeting ritual, right? No one has any clue that this was matrimony that was going on here. Right. But, but again, the, 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 the as Chris was saying, the sort of the journey from, okay, I find myself married to a native woman and I don't even know who she is or why to his like genuine affection and attachment to her comes from like the obvious devotion of her, of her, of her service to him. You know, she, she's really attached to him and looks out for him and protects him and, and tends him when he's sick and all these other things. Um, uh, so that's, and that of course was picked up on in the film, in the scene here in the bottom center, right? Mm -hmm. Where she's like sneaking out and transgressively, you know, uh, going into the inner sanctum in order to check up on him because he's sick, right? Um, so we do see, we do see that element there. But I think there's another way in which the wife element is handled very differently in the book. And again, that's because like she's, She's all she's already strange. Like Leo's connection to uh, 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 to you know his his native wife is already way outside boundaries, right? right. So there's, there there is not although her her love for him is a very kind of housewifely sort of love, uh, and very much in contrast to the awesome otherness of of Aisha. Um, it's not exactly home versus. Right. She's still Alien. kind of other. Not yeah, very other. difference. Yeah, there's a difference in degree, but she's not representative of those sort of homely English values necessarily. Right. And and this Tanya could have a Russian accent. She was raised by Russian nuns, but she's as British as you can get. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. Down yes. to the house dress. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was that was one of the things I kind of struggled with. But um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't shocked that we brought it back around to like, oh, you know, the the home hearth fire is really, you know, preferable to like we have chosen this and uh, instead of, you know, the awesome fires of immortality that we were sort of seeking from the beginning. Um, oh, and by the way, that was another massive, massive change. Holly is the skeptic all through the book, right? He's yeah. the one who from the beginning is like, I don't buy any of this, you know, like all oh, this is nonsense. It can't possibly be true. And um, 
so that was that was probably to me the second most shocking moment in the film like where i was just kind of reeling back and trying to parse things um was when holly and mr vincey senior who dies right we're coming in at the beginning and they're like, okay, so we know we've proven scientifically that all of these things are true and it must happen. And I'm like, uh, really? <laughs> okay. So that puts things on a different footing there. Um, but it made therefore, I think more significant the choice at the end to turn aside and, uh, and, um, and come back. Oh, and by the way, another thing, another really interesting conceptual difference, um, if Leo had chosen immortality and life with Aisha in the film, that would have meant him becoming a kind of fossil too, right? Like living there in the tomb, shut away from the world, you know, there in the Arctic, um, you know, and he'd have her and she's great. And the two of them would have been together, but they just would have been them and the people of core and the, cannibalistic neanderthal hot potters and you know not much else to do right i mean it was really like choose this tanya is really emphasizing this right like what can i offer you she's offering you immortality right well i can't one up that but all i can offer you is a life together and you know she's dep depicting these like domestic pleasures of you know the two of us growing old together and experiencing happy things and sad things and and uh, but so it's really the choice between the two lives. Whereas in the book, um, in the book, there's the, the the similar like once she's like Aisha is proposing like okay, so Leo, you're gonna or Calicrates as she always calls him, Calicrates, you're gonna go through the fire and you're we're both gonna be immortal. And what's gonna happen next, of course, is global domination, right? We're gonna go out and we're gonna take over the world. In fact, the the scene I could not help remembering throughout that section was the discomfort of Polly and Diggory and the magician's nephew when they're talking to Jadis, when she's like, you know, when, when they're like, oh, our world, it's not really worth visiting. And she's like, it will be worth visiting when I rule it, right? Uh, and, you know, they're like, that won't be allowed, you know? I mean, they're kind of, like, as they're sort of like trying to get their heads around like this sorcerer queen who's gonna come and take over the world and that would be deeply uncomfortable. And let's try to hope that this doesn't happen. Holly does the same thing when Aisha is like, yes, with my almost infinite wisdom and knowledge and power and my irresistible beauty, I shall come and with Calicrates by my side and his wisdom and knowledge sh shall surpass everything else. And the two of us shall rule the entire world together side by side. She's totally planning to move to England uh, and take over yeah. in a very Jadis like way. Um, and it doesn't come to it. Like they don't, unlike Jadis, she doesn't get to England. So, you know, we don't actually see that happening, but um, anyway, that's, um, that's definitely, I was a I was I was interested that they in a sense kind of simplified that right um, in the book that seemed to have the effect um, uh, for Haggard of basically sort of showing I don't know it was a pretty clear indicator like okay Leo that's the wrong choice right if you you know don't choose global domination that's probably not where you know the I mean it's one of the places where she's like most completely crazy because she's um she's pretty bad in the book like she's she's got some deep problems uh aisha's character does um whereas again here it's like stay here alone with me or choose the world it's a it's a less morally 
charged choice that Leo is making there. Um, and of course, then it, you know, it leads up to that final, that final, that final choice, that final juxtaposition uh, with the hearth fire. So. Yeah, um, and, and in addition to Galadriel, I know a lot of people have made connections between she and Jadis in other ways cool. as well, an influence on C.S. Lewis. I guess, strangely, almost strengthened by the move to the Arctic. Like now she's mm, become yes. a sort of ice queen, which only makes her a bit more, you know. <laughs> more Jadis-like, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, Sharon points out that uh, we, we haven't really discussed it much, um, you know, comparing the film to the original book. But, of course, there are elements that are pulled in from all the books uh, in this series, apparently. Um, I haven't – I've only ever read She. I've not read the sequel. Yeah, so I, I couldn't yeah. comment specifically on that. But um, just pointing out that maybe, uh, you know, that, that move um, – well, there's the the cat. I think you mentioned Tibet before, right? Like one of the books mm -hmm. takes place in Tibet, but mm -hmm. it's not quite the Arctic. But you know, it's it's high mountain, cold and snowy. Old like mountain. Same thing, pretty much, right? <laughs> Asia's not big, right? Like it's kind of all the same. That's nah, pretty compact. <laughs> like the size of Delaware, right? Right. Right. I, I'm actually listening to it now on, on audiobook and uh, Aisha, The Return of She, and talk about authorial retconning. He really retcons the whole relationship between Leo and um, Callicrates and first wife and, and mm -hmm. Aisha. They, he changes all their personalities. It's really bizarre. So mm -hmm. that's for another discussion. Did anybody notice that Horace Holly was Dr. Watson? <laughs> no, I didn't. No. Nigel Bruce. <laughs> I did not. There you go. Well, um, we're kind of up uh, in the last few minutes here. Okay. I don't know. Uh, it, I, I don't want to cut anyone off if, if you have any final thoughts, but uh, maybe we should go into um, the drawings or. The, yeah, yeah, uh, let's do drawings. Let's do drawings. Okay. Um, all right. So let me do. Uh, I gotta. I gotta do some navigating in Windows here. Okay. Okay. Excellent. All right. Now, of course, as always, I do my drawings uh, with the roll of multi-sided dice. Uh, that's my own personal tradition here. So let's see. Okay. And the winner of our donor drawing is Jennifer Ham. Congratulations, Jennifer Ham. All right. And then... Our attendee drawing. Okay, let's see. Where was my other thing there? Okay, all right. Attendee drawing. And let's see. And the winner is not. Okay, Mubot doesn't count. Um, so let's see. Mubot. 
there 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 was a drawing earlier when I when I when I actually rolled Moobot. Uh, and I'm like, no, no, that's just that's not gonna work. Okay. Okay. Let's see. So the winner is um oh Crystal Eowyn. Crystal Eowyn is the winner. Congratulations. Oh. Uh congratulations, Crystal. Uh, you are the winner. So those two people, Jennifer and Crystal, should um, send an email to donate at signumu.org, and we will connect you with your prize. Cool. Congrats. Well, thank you all uh, to all our panelists and, of course, to all of our uh, attendees tonight. Uh, great uh, conversation and and comments uh, as always from the audience, even the ones we didn't uh, read out loud necessarily. Um, don't forget the Webathon on Saturday and of course all of our other events that are coming up um, at Signum and Mythgard. And uh, we look forward to seeing you back on November 15th for the movie club uh, for a Night of the Living Dead. So thanks everyone. Very thanks. good. Uh, yes. Oh, and uh, uh, Takako was asking if we have film film this week. We do have film film this week. Uh, That's right. Yes. Tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Eastern time, we are going to start our discussion of season four of the film film project. Yep. Sorry. Great. On the subject That's of announcements that just came in here. But see, here's like interrupted you right in your sign off there, which was not good. <laughs> Trying to catch it's all good. It's, it's been a while for some film, so and it's a new season, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I know there's a lot of excitement about that. Great. Okay. Well, we'll see you all next time. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.